see how... You want to do a sync clap? Yeah, we'll do another clap. Does that work for you, Chris? Yep, I'm ready when you are. All right. Three, two, one. Oh, sorry. One more time. I wasn't actually ready. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I Bluff did. called. Yeah. All right. All right. Ready? All right. Three, two, one. Cool. Best sync in history. So when, uh, because Brittany and I are fancy ourselves writers, we often uh, doodle in like nonsense phrases while we're talking. There's a little behind the scenes iron weeds. <laughs> and I, I wrote last week, I wrote poop equal Brittany, but also love equal Brittany. So love equal poop question mark. Yeah, you're really nice to me. I yeah. appreciate that. And, uh, and, and well, well, Brittany has cut it out into a heart. You you trace it a heart around it, and yeah. I cut that out. Yeah. So nice. you love it, actually. And I've just been staring at it this entire time. I just use it as uh, inspiration to stay mad at you all the time. That's okay. the only reason I saved it. It's sort of like, it's like, cool. a, it's like a dust to dust, you know? It's like, life is poop. It's true. Yeah. It's very actually. profound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. Well, because really, do, when you live with someone, uh, quite often you are consuming, like, you know, dead skin particles and hair and, you know, like all the detritus that falls off a human body. You know, like your guts are in sync and stuff. So, this is really, Let's... really, Yo, like, love is poop. Life is disgusting. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Have you ever seen any of those surgery videos? They we were, watched a lot of pimple popping. I watched a lot of pimple popping in my day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a kind Sift of drainage. kind of surgery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Occasionally, I go down a YouTube rabbit hole just watching uh, surgeries, and it's insane. It's like that's too much. That's too much. <laughs> I don't think just, I could do that. It's just you know, man, heart, hearts and uh, prayers out for everybody that's in the medical field at all. Like you know, like even outside of these ridiculous times that, you know, doing your job is like putting yourself at mortal peril, like on a day-to-day basis. Um, just having the heart to like deal with sick and, and suffering people like a day in day out on like that face-to-face, like emotionally draining or, you know, I mean, there, um, there must be a type that it, it really like is life affirming and like helps them helps them keep going it's like i have no idea how how they do it like i i I couldn't do that my mom wanted me to be a doctor when i was a a kid but i just don't have the heart for it i mean everyone's built for different things we're built for podcasting (laughs) and that's also it's different okay it's not better or worse it's just different Yeah, I mean, and as we'll see in this week's Kropotkin, uh, there's no reason for nurses to be paid more than podcasters. So, uh, <laughs> no reason. Pa- Patreon.com no. <laughs> slash Ironweeds. We, as essential workers on the front lines of the coronavirus. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, we we really deserve to be compensated for our labor. Really? Oh, but we're, we're as, but as we will also see, the wage <laughs> system is not the way to do that. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, for real though, like like humans have never been bodies and spaces more than they are right now, you know, or just like we are definitely. I think it's one thing that like is really fucking with a lot of people. I think that we haven't talked about is how much we think of ourselves as like beyond biology because, uh, like we're 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 modern people that like have like robot surgery shit and stuff i don't know we like do stuff with lasers to our bodies i don't know talking out of my ass mostly for that part but like like now we're we're semi-sci-fi 
Yeah, yeah. And and, and now it's just like, nope, just some like dumb virus. Like like thousands of people die. It's like the Middle Ages. It doesn't matter. We're still we're still with just bodies in space. <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, I. I think that there's something to that. Like we have that we don't talk about. It's like, oh man, we're like civilization is still very vulnerable to like the nor like the old shit of just like plagues. Yeah, seems very. Uh, that's, it doesn't feel very end of history of us to like die in a plague. They're making a big comeback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, everything that's old is new again. I'm telling you, I'm going long on buggy whip. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but chamber pots buy 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 chamber pots well, so is is injecting bleach like the leeches of our time is that, <laughs> uh, are we like so draining the bad humors yeah. and uh putting sunshine up your butthole to clear out the lungs like yeah. is that have we reached that stage of uh lack of scientific knowledge about treating things the the four elements clorox lysol uh poop viruses and light so it's five. five. It's five. five el- yeah, yeah. Five elements. Yeah. Man. You, typically, the fifth element is the human spirit. Right. Here it's injecting Lysol. Yes. Yeah. <gasps> oh, my God. Uh, can we play the clip? Yes. Ta- take it away, Don. Thank you very much. So I'm going to ask Bill a question that probably some of you are thinking of if you're totally into that world, which I find to be very interesting. So, supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who could. right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. There was also a... Uh, uh like a video I saw of a like a, a medical doctor watching the clip and reacting to it in real time. Yeah, he's like, "Oh no, no, that, that gives you cancer. No, <laughs> don't, do that. don't do that." What? And, no. Uh, said, that has been checked, but you know, no, it'll and blow apart your DNA. It's body. it'll overwhelm the, the mutation fixing uh, enzymes. Way. It's like and I think you, you, you know, cause cancer. Right, and then I see the uh, no, 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 the bacteria will be fine, but you'll be dead or of cancer. Uh, uh, so, yeah, you know, we, we've been telling people not to drink disinfectant, but we should also be telling people uh, do not try to put UV light inside your body. Now, do we all have access to that technology? No. Obviously, more of us have bleach than... Uh, high-powered UV lights that can be inserted into the human body. But if you do have access to that, don't do it, guys. It's not worth it. In the short term, you might get electrocuted. (laughs) (laughs) And the long-term, cancer. Access to that. (laughs) (laughs) Like for like for real, for real. Like I, my company uh, that that I work for makes UVC LEDs, 
Um, so little solid state um, emission diodes of a frequency of light that normally is produced by either a xenon or a mercury lamp. Um, and that's typically how they do um, surface disinfection. So if I have any guess as to what happened, it's like, you know, Donald Trump was informed how- directly off mic like a minute before that UV and uh, like alcohol can uh, sanitize a surface from virus okay. in like a minute. And he was like, holy shit, a minute. <laughs> then his mind started like you know the hamster wheel started getting getting some momentum going he's like what if, what if you put the light inside the body what, well, what, what if you said, drink the alcohol what if you put it in your blood <laughs> well i and, think i think part of the the press conference was them saying um that sunlight kills it like it so leaving things in sunshine will well, kill well, there's the, a picture of him looking at the poster right yeah. Okay. So yeah, there's this picture of Trump looking at this poster that has like bullet points on it. And uh, I think one of them was sunshine. And then another one was that rubbing alcohol and bleach kill the virus within a minute. And so it's very clear that he like saw this poster before going on and was like, my God, can I be the only one who's thought of this? <laughs> what if we put the thing that kills the virus in the body? <laughs> it does a tremendous job to the to the lungs. Tremendous. Tremendous things happen. Tremendous. <sighs> I think I think it, I, I, I think afterward he, he claimed that he was being sarcastic. He did, yes. He said that he was being sarcastic. which so, you know, Trump, great sense of humor. Famously fantastic sense of humor. He really gets it. Um but yeah, he said that he was being sarcastic and the media took him seriously which like you know you've just heard the clip he is not joking i mean not only does he have no humor in him but like come on he's just he's just a dumb guy so yeah i have two theories on what's going on it's either you know he's in the uh the oval office or whatever the equivalent green room is uh before this and he's like all right what am i gonna do to capture the news tension today um i don't know uh, come on, come on, think, come on. He's, you know, making deals with his own thoughts and his brain. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, uh, tell him to drink bleach, Donnie. And he's like, come on, you gotta give me something. He's like, hey, hey, take it or leave it. He's like, ah, you drive a hard bargain. You know, like. <laughs> it was either that or like punch, Jer- uh, punch Jared Kushner, like in the, in the balls and then like blame someone else for it. And then like, that would just be a news story. That I wouldn't be surprised about. It was like, like the president punches his son-in-law in the balls, blames uh, the Democrats, and then, <laughs> and then, and it's just like that's just the story now that we that we read, and we're like, oh yeah, the president did punches son-in-law in the balls and like oh you know actually like that's pretty cool now, actually now I think about it I don't like Jared Kushner either, and then you like you like him a little bit and then you feel bad and then it's like oh we shouldn't. He's bad. Like, no, President Trump is a bad person. I want to know what's happening with you, David, that you went to punching. Balls. <laughs> I, I want to punch Jared Kushner in the balls what, so badly. What kind of weird mood are we in today on Man, the pod? Yeah, you did not like that uh, that peace plan, huh? You know, he, no, I did. No, it's bad. He did a bad job. It's a bad deal. It's not even a good deal. It's a bad deal. Oh, God. There's also been like pictures of like. Jared Kushner, uh, like from a couple of years ago, you know, like how like the presidency always like we- like wears down the the man like very very 
quickly and like you or like, woman or wow. woman wow david yeah wow. or the you theoretical women wi- can be president or the theoretical women that have been president before right and uh um uh and you just like see like how like like obama like aged like 10 years in 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 three uh but um i think it's happening to jared kushner he's like you see pictures of him like a couple like three years ago and he looks like a like a young man like, see, he looks kind of like a young man and now he looks like a like a dracula <laughs> It's <laughs> so sad. He, he's the emotional whipping boy of the uh, presidency. Or- he's like Trump's Dorian Gray portrait. <laughs> <laughs> just like, at, at, <laughs> like at night, like Trump is like, it's time, Jared. <laughs> he's like, no, not again. He's just, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I just does just some sort of Sucks emotional. Away his youth. Yeah, yeah, some sort of like a, emotional vampire thing. <laughs> so the other theory about. What's going on with Trump is that um, he doesn't really know anything about what's anything, except he has the world's strongest sensation of just riding the the reins of history, and like that your thoughts are like incredibly important and valid, regardless of like what what they are or what you're saying, and so he's just like willing to be like, yeah, I think I just came up with a medical discovery that will help the entire nation. And like <laughs> believes it because he thinks he's magic genius doctor. I think he absolutely believes that at least in that moment, he believed that maybe you could inject bleach and heal yourself. Cause I just like, I just don't think that he's playing 12 D chess to manipulate the media. I don't think that he, obviously I've already made clear that I don't think he has a sense of humor. So I don't think he was joking. Like, I really do think that he believes this shit and he's just really, really stupid. Everybody yeah. knows just, that's the explanation. He's fucking stupid. Everybody knows the only thing that drinking bleach cures is autism. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Please, please. That's, that, that's confirmed medical science. Yeah. Uh, the satire parody. Don't 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 drink. Don't, bleach. don't drink. All bleach. of our <laughs> autist. All of our autist listeners. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Uh-huh. And also, you're fine just the way you are. It's not. You don't need to change. Not for me, baby. No. Yeah. Just, no, just keep listening to Iron Weeds. So how about Nancy Pelosi's freezer, am I right? Oh, my God. What's the deal with airline food? So, the t- so you know, the Talenti that she's got, the gelato, like, look, I'm a fan. When Last time we went grocery shopping, I picked up two just because we wanted to treat ourselves. Yeah. Those things are like nine bucks a pop. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's like it's, a some, that's like a sometimes it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine sort of purchase. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and we and we eat it in one setting, one sitting, uh, one know, setting and one sitting. Yeah, exactly. And that yeah. setting is the end of the world. <laughs> but so this other ice cream that she had in there, Jenny's splendid ice cream. Right. So um, it, it's. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't even get into it because I don't know the specifics of. I know the specifics. All right. So in (laughs) Cleveland, Ohio, there is a James Beard award winning ice cream maker named Jenny. And she is very good friends with the Democratic Party. Like way back in 2016, there's like a local Cleveland news station that does a story about like how all the DNC, how uh, um, uh, what's his name? The skeleton that runs the DNC. Tom Perez. Right. Tom Perez is like hugging Jeez. Jenny. Like, I swear to God, like she he's just like hanging out with this ice cream lady 
And now uh, uh, new records. This came out two days ago on Eater that uh, the Joe Biden campaign has spent ten thousand dollars on Jenny's ice cream, uh, giving it out in seventy dollar increments because that's how much five pints of the ice cream costs is seventy dollars. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, and they they are gifts to high dollar donor donors. They give them five pints of Jenny's ice cream for seventy dollars. So okay, so, so what? So, okay, and and so there that means that there is approximately a hundred and fifty dollars worth of Jenny's ice cream in that little uh, freezer that um, that Nancy Pelosi showed off in her like ten thousand dollar refrigerator. Uh, on the James Corden carpool karaoke guy late late show, show. which the Republicans have already turned into an attack ad. Yeah. If I if I am correct on oh that. absolutely yeah and he's like well it's like it I th- I feel like it was like automatically created for them by an algorithm it was just like it seems it's so predictable yeah did you guys see the attack ad that was just um, clips of Biden uh, speaking and then like a picture of uh, Donald Trump like watching the TV and like looking at the camera and like shrugging and like rolling his eyes (laughs) yeah i mean gosh who could have predicted that you know the elitism of democratic party leaders and then also the uh brain meltage of joe biden would make for really good material for republicans to attack dems on like it's it's just so so predictable and i can't believe we found it we've found ourselves in this predicament and now like means now because of the tara reed situation you know the the woman who's accused joe biden of sexual assault and there's this tape coming out of her mother calling into the larry king show to that was removed it was yes yeah, so yeah, first so of all it's taken removed. off of google play yeah. it was taken off the google play store this particular 1993 interview with larry king for some fucking weird reason and so now mainstream media is finally starting to pick up on this story just as it's become precisely too fucking late to do really anything about it um you know there's already people talking about replacing biden before the convention which like how is the convention even going to happen i mean what a fucking mess we have really bungled this entire he should be like the easiest you know incumbent to defeat in the history of the american presidency and we have just fucked it up very very successfully well we o bungled it right he's like yeah he's, it was actually obama, was obama. right that, that showed up yeah, in like thanks obama bins. yeah he o bungled the 2020 primary uh they said it couldn't be done he did they it. said it couldn't be done he did it the thing that that's got me the most worried over the last several weeks since this all really happened was uh it, you know just the thought that having a reasonable chance of electoralism addressing at least the most severe and acute um pressure points within our society that that was something of like a safety valve you know for people's like uh frustrations and um you know political demands. And with the uh, defeat of Bernie Sanders by uh, Joe Biden and Obama and the whole establishment uh, Democratic uh, Party, it seems like that safety valve has been like tampered with. And, you know, like, I I just don't know what another four years with accelerating financial instability and pressure on, you know, a now largely literally uh, unable to find any source of income population like we 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 were joking off mic earlier about uh the 
seemingly astroturf um, protest uh, system uh, that's going through the United States uh, calling for reopens. But I think there's going to be like a, an actual really big and maybe potentially uh, hard to uh, quiet <laughs> protest movement that's going to be coming if and when um, there is some type of reopening uh, because of just the economic forces that are being unleashed on like the the working class uh, that can't afford to bear them. Yeah, you know, and if if you're still processing like the uh Bernie not winning the the DNC uh primary and if you're still like um like trying to find historical antecedents and you have a Netflix account, <laughs> the um Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States, it's pretty like uh like college dorm room sort of uh like whoa you didn't know the history this way kind of thing but i I actually really like it and um the episode two roosevelt truman wallace is a really good uh reminder at how the dnc is designed to not um produce radical change so it's really it's so weird that we've completely erased henry wallace well it's not weird it's pretty predictable if you if you know the history, but Henry Wallace, this uh, v, uh the vice president of Truman of uh, of FDR, sorry, um, the for like most of his four terms in office, he's like dramatically and suddenly taken off the ticket, and on Truman's four, or sorry, <laughs> keep saying Truman Roosevelt's fourth term, and Truman is put in out of nowhere, just absolutely out of nowhere. And uh, and which kept Henry Wallace from being a president. And Henry Wallace was like really he was like being uh, studied by Hoover as like a possible uh, Soviet agent. Like he was very, very down. He was left wing. Yeah, he was very, very left. And uh, and and the Democratic Party could not have him become president. And uh, and so they, they just scrounged up Truman out of nowhere, like at the convention. This was at the convention. No one had heard of Truman until the. DNC convention. Was yeah, there's a long history of the DNC rat fucking leftists. Like this is yeah. not a new phenomenon at all. And you know, like that's the power gonna power, right? That's yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, at the time, were people uh, like aware that this was likely, or was you know, is this known, or did they think it was a uh, democratic establishment like people still think today? Well, so in the the forty four. Democratic primary, like that—that's before McGovern. So we don't have the um, the vote, the, like the popular voting system for primaries at all. It's actually just like you decide at the convention. And Wallace was expecting to be like uh, um, Roosevelt didn't even show up to the forty-four convention because he was so sick, uh, and it was pretty much an open secret, like that he's going to die in office. So whoever we elect as vice president is going to be the next president uh because FDR is going to die soon uh and so the the um uh Wallace went into the current vice president went into the the convention as if he was going to be coronated be, still still be the vice president and well but he was also like widely popular like there were i think there was like a poll uh done at the beginning of the convention where he had like 60% support like a pretty solid majority of support and and 
Uh, and then it, it, it the, de- the votes got delayed, which should sound familiar. You know, like they, they, uh, uh, they did a roll call vote and it wasn't recorded, but they just like said that it went one way when it clearly went another. And they just did a bunch of like, uh, parliamentary rat fuckery. And, uh, and we ended up getting Truman, who is like just like a, like a failed car salesman. <laughs> just like became president, did, had met FDR twice. Before he became president. Hmm. And then he just like one day became president. And then they told him like, oh, we've been developing a nuclear weapon. Do you want to drop that? And he's like, yeah, I would like to be uh, a historic figure. <laughs> yeah, that's literally and, the only thing I, yeah. I associate with Truman is uh, dropping two nuclear uh, weapons yeah. on uh, cities full of people. Yeah, he, he didn't even know that we were doing that. We had the nuclear weapon like in production until he became president. Wow. So, I mean, you know, you were talking about uh, with the, uh, the the pressure at that time on who uh, was going to be selected for the vice presidency. It uh, rings very true today, you know, where yeah. there's a yeah. lot of pressure. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's going to be it's going to be really weird, <laughs> acceleratingly weird. I, I, I've emotionally distanced myself from the presidential election because at this point, with uh, Bernie out and it very, very clear that w- under no circumstances whatsoever will the Democratic Party ever actually fight for like a, you know, progressive set of policies that help working people. Um, the the path forward on uh, national uh, and especially presidential uh, politics is uh, I, I, I hope it's not as bad as it can be. <laughs> <laughs> essentially all all i really you know can can feel at this at this point it looks like it's gonna yeah, be pretty bad a, yes it does yeah and it's hard i think right now because i feel like a lot of energy we f- we feel very sapped after those of us and that would be i think most people on the left that have not uh tend not to see electoral politics particularly of the presidency as a useful way forward for, you know, getting real substantive anti-capitalist change. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are feeling sapped and like resource light after, you know, so much energy was put into organizing for Bernie. And now there's this weird vacuum at the same time that this global pandemic is is happening and this, you know, crashing economy and, you know, the disaster capital boondoggling. And, you know, hoarding of resources by the elite, like it's really hard to know how to go forward. It it feels simultaneously like a like a moment where radical change is possible. But, you know, we can't get together. We can't get in the street. And it's a it's a it's really it's a scary moment, but it's also incredibly frustrating. I feel like there's a lot of kind of pent up rage that no one really quite knows what to do with right now. Yeah, I'm putting all of my eggs in the basket of Jesse Ventura running for president. Yes. The, yeah, let's talk party. about yeah, let's talk about Jesse Ventura running on the Green Party because I really think this is the solution to this problem that nobody asked for. But if you're not excited for it, I don't know how to talk to you. Man, I can't wait for about his, the Green New Deal. Yeah, I can't wait for him to uh, debate vermin. <laughs> oh God! They oh, do that, that would be so great. They probably yeah. will. I mean, we, don't get, they, we don't should they try to get that? Jesse Ventura on the pod. Yeah, they, they do like the third party debates and stuff sometimes uh, on the internet. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry, I totally didn't even hear what you just said. Yes, we should. We should do that. 
Jesse Ventura, come on the pod. <laughs> yeah, Jesse Ventura, go on Ironweeds. He's just the body in spaces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah, we should make a, a, a wrestling character called Spaces, and then Jesse the body Ventura could fight the spaces. So, so Jesse and Ventura... And it would be the body in spaces. Is he still a 9-11 truther? Because that would be a, a crazy interview to, to, to talk about that. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I hope he hasn't gone soft. <laughs> All right, so Ironweeds listeners, mass tweet at Jesse Ventura telling him to go on Ironweeds, and then he'll think that there's a groundswell of support for his campaign among our, our listenership. And he would be right. And he would be right. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, there was uh, rumors going around that Jesse Ventura was going to run on the Green Party ticket. He has, um, as uh, Syracuse.com puts it, he has... Um, body slammed rumors that he's running for president but um wait so he's not running well so he he says that it's um he called it salacious he, salacious clickbait uh he says earn your pay <laughs> he, 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 this is him uh tweeting at um tweeting at journalists he says earn your paycheck verify something anything let's start with no i haven't filed to run for office so but he did tweet vote green, is that correct? Yeah, but he did say vote green. He said you should always vote ethically, no exceptions. If demo crips and reblodlicans aren't up wow, to your really, standards, that really flows off then the why the hell are you voting them in? Yeah. So yeah, he's just uh I like twenty sixteen he endorsed Gary Johnson for the libertarian. Oh my god, what if he endorses Vermin Supreme? He could. <laughs> Yeah, I could see I could see a bourbon cabinet with uh, Jesse the Body Ventura on it. Maybe like uh, Secretary of uh, Physical Fitness Education. Yeah, yeah, and and for some reason the the physical fit or what's that um that uh, committee that would like give you a medal in elementary school if you like did ten pull ups presidential. Presidential fitness, yeah, committee or something. Yeah, yeah. and I failed those so miserably. Yeah. I was such a chunky little kid. But wouldn't it be great if that body became like more powerful than the State Department under a Je- Jesse Ventura presidency? Mandatory PE for all adults under the age of sixty-five. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like that's how you earn Medicare, like for all is like you just have to do ten push-ups. If you do 10 push-ups, you get healthcare. Speaking of uh, Jesse saying stop voting in these, you know, uh, what did Demo... Come on. Demo Demo Crips or Reblood Licans. Right, okay. (laughs) So I wonder if it's worth us mentioning Noam Chomsky's uh, directive to vote for Joe Biden. What are uh, your, do you guys have thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, yeah. that was I, depressing. I am completely unfazed. I mean, this is like the <laughs> sixth time I've seen Noam Chomsky come out, it'd be trotted out by the, uh, liberal establishment uh you know press <laughs> and uh be like, see, see, you know, you gotta do it, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. Be a good yeah, somebody, I can't, maybe it was American Johnson. I don't remember who it was like the only time the mainstream media has ever paid attention to Noam Chomsky is when he tells you to vote for the establishment candidate. Yeah. So Chomsky's argument was that uh, com- in 1930s Germany, I think 1930s, uh, communists inability or, or not inability, in, uh, unwillingness, unwillingness yeah. to work with the social Democrats of the time is what led to the rise of Hitler. 
Um, and so that's his argument for voting for Joe Biden is basically that Trump is, you know, Hitler. And that's the analogy that he's making anyway, and that any leftists who plan to withhold their vote for Biden are, you know, responsible for. So, like, first of all, let's unpack the fact that, like, German communists in the 1930s are not responsible for the rise of Hitler. You know who is responsible for the rise of Hitler? The Hitler. fucking Nazis. Like, yep. Um, Everybody and, who know, voted Trump's- for that motherfucker slash a, like appeased a, a and allowed for that that power grab to 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 go largely, uh, you know, not even protest protest uh, like Henry Henry Ford. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Henry or how Ford about counts. even just the social democrats in Germany who were oppressing communists? You know, not being willing to work with the people who are actively suppressing, oppressing, and in some cases slaughtering you. Uh, R.I.P. Rosa Luxemburg. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think for a lot of people, by nature of the fact that he's uh, Chomsky's a public intellectual, he's one of the few, I think, voices on the academic left that actively tries to communicate his ideas to people who are maybe outside of the ivory tower. So he was a lot of people's entrance to the left is Noam Chomsky. And so I think it's really hard right now to deal with the fact that, you know, obviously, number one, kill your heroes. Uh, your fave is problematic. Always. Your fave has always been problematic. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people are left feeling a bit adrift, uh, especially maybe newcomers to left politics who are who want to kind of fight the power and, you know, don't you, you can't you can't force me to vote for the establishment candidate. But I wonder, like, what I don't know, like, what do we do with that fact other than just say. I just don't understand why everybody gives so much of a fuck about it. Like, you know, uh, ultimately voting for the president of the United States as much uh, attention as we try to give it. The reason we give it attention is so that it can have like broad sweeping, important policy uh, and political goal like effects. Right. And when you literally have like two people as closely aligned as Donald Trump and Joe Biden and like, you know, don't at me. Like they actually just agree on a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um, they do, and, and you yeah. want and you want to browbeat people about the importance of choosing one over the other. Um, it, you know, like I get the argument for for all of the uh, Biden's uh, you know weaknesses. He isn't explicitly courting Nazis. That alone might Which maybe is ultimately. Uh, which is ultimately the only argument you can make in favor of Biden over Trump is well, that you know, he doesn't you, actively. You could also say that the, the the pressures he would get for Supreme Court justices and yada yada. They're like there are arguments to be made, right? And I get why people are out there making them. And I'm not going to condemn uh, Noam Chomsky for thinking that the Dems are the lesser of two evils. Like he's entitled to that opinion, and I think yeah. that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he's right. Right to to that point, but ultimately it's just like two thirds of the country doesn't vote can you know, and the third that does is roughly split between voting for the good cop or the bad cop, and then there's this one percent on the fringe that's like, uh, I, we're, I'm going to go vote third party because like I want my vote to be a protest vote of this duopoly, blah blah blah, and they're like the principled people who get blamed for every single right wing disaster that comes into power. And and it's all theater and it's all, you know, you know, even Chomsky himself is just like, 
I think, doing this largely to be on the right side of history. You know, like, does he think that yeah. the amount of people that he's going to convince to vote for a rapist, senile man uh, who, with a horrible voting record um, instead of, you know, a socialist that has no chance or whatever, does he think that that will actually translate into some type of actual harm being reduced? Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, like, I think that there are elements to the way that uh, our country has become fundamentally worse uh, under Trump uh, in maybe an irrevocable way that uh, would have been worth uh, avoiding in, in having a Hillary, uh, you know, presidency. And you could make that argument. And like, you know, I, Mehdi Hassan or whatever gets apoplectic uh, when you know, talking about Susan Sarandon and Jill Stein voters and blaming them <laughs> for, you know, the appointment of, uh, of Michael Bolton, because now we're going to have, you know, a nuclear Armageddon and it's all fucking Susan Sarandon and Jill Stein voters fault. And like, aren't you happy now? Like, y y how are you, was your, your political purity, blah, blah, blah. And so the idea being that is fighting for a, uh, uh, a rejection of our current political institutions by protest voting during a presidency between, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, like a, a moral good uh, as well. I think that it's fine. Basically, just vote for whoever you want. Doesn't really fucking matter. It's unfortunate. But like there, it's been very clearly demonstrated in the last, you know, six uh, years or more that there's no fixing the fundamental issues that we really need to fix through, uh, you know, Democrat and Republican national, uh, political campaigns for president. Like it doesn't not look like we ever could have actually won. And even if we did that, anybody would have worked with us to be able to bring about any type of, uh, policy that, you know, helped human beings. If, if, if you are just coming into leftist politics and you, um, I feel for you, uh, especially with regard to like Noam Chomsky telling you to vote for Joe Biden, because I started just developing my music tastes when Modest Mouse came out with uh, good news for people who hate bad news. <laughs> Love, bad news. <laughs> Love bad news. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, uh, you know, it's basically the same thing, whereas like if Noam Chomsky is telling you to vote for Joe Biden. It's like, well, now here's this album that is very different from what made Modest Mouse good. Uh, and now all of the wrong people like it. But you know what? It's, it might still be a good album. You know what? Right? Controversial take. I'm <laughs> yeah. a huge, I am a huge Modest Mouse fan. Like, like know every lyric to every song they've ever, they've ever released. We've seen them live twice. We've seen them live twice. Uh, I think good news for people who love bad news is a it's, good it, album. It's a good album. It's I a agree. good album. I agree. Yeah. It just also happened to be a normie album. And maybe you know, Noam Chomsky is being normie right now. It doesn't make his uh, like earlier albums. It do, but you know, know what? <laughs> you're not. You know what? Uh, no one's first and you're next. You wouldn't get that album if you didn't have good news for people who love bad news. And that's a solid. That's a fire album. Like history sticks to your feet. Fantastic song. Totally underrated. So I'm just saying. That maybe uh, Joe Biden will pave the way for a new, really good Modest Mouse album. And that's not a metaphor. I'm actually saying that maybe the Joe Biden nomination will inspire Modest Mouse to make a really good album. Just because 
Just because Noam Chomsky drew a blank and put it in a frame doesn't mean <laughs> you, you, know, you, you, uh, you have to write him off completely. Though at the same time, you know, broke Noam Chomsky, woke young Chomsky. Ooh, yeah, Chomsky. <laughs> I like Noam. I, I think Noam, Noam's uh, somebody who who is trying to do you know do what's right. Like I, yeah, I don't of know. Course. You know, he's like, also like ninety three fucking years old. Yeah, and it's, you know another thing that we haven't met. This is sort of my hot take on it is that as you get older, people tend to become more conservative, and so conservatism for an anarchist like. Noam Chomsky just means voting for Biden. It took a century <laughs> but, for him to get to no, that. No, it took no, hundred, yeah, <laughs> fucking years. Maybe, maybe. The thing is, though, is is that you know he is so consistent about this that like the rhetorical differences, however minute, are important enough to make a distinction, and that's a reasonable argument. But it's also yeah. reasonable to yeah. make the argument that like, what could the Democratic Party possibly do to lose? having earned your uh, vote simply be, by not being, like, overtly, explicitly obnoxious monsters. <laughs> like, like what, you know, just in rhetoric alone, like, just by paying lip service uh, 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 alone, it's enough to always be the better. So that logic isn't, like, worth rehashing every fucking four years. It's like, yeah, people yeah. either yeah. believe that or they don't, you know? And it's like... <laughs> but like, don't. I, mean, I do think there's a. Yeah. I think there's a conversation to be had about you know. Generally, I think accelerationism is distasteful to those of us on the left because it means the death of many, probably millions of people. Um, and I agree with that. And I'm not an accelerationist by any means. But there is also the question of like. Allowing the Democrats to continue holding the vote of the left hostage by running these shitty, you know, conservative candidates and then demanding that we vote for them and then we vote for them and then we give them no reason to run anybody more radical. And maybe all of this is just like moot and not even worth discussing because we should by now have learned the lesson that until we get like a Eugene Debs, until we get like a real socialist presidential candidate who has a shot at winning more than 5% of the vote, like maybe there's no real reason to even talk about it. But it's hard because there aren't a lot of paths into effective leftist politics that extend beyond, you know, your local food pantry or, you know, people kind of tend to say like, oh, so what, we just do food, not bombs until we overthrow capitalism. And it's it's sort of it's, it's really it's really <laughs> fucking hard. Like it's really yeah. fucking hard to feel like any of the alternatives to electoral politics are going to get us to where we need to go. Jesse Ventura is going to run a green part, a successful Green Party campaign strictly over ham radio. And, <laughs> and that will usher in the, a, a new uh, era of American communism. Well, you know, people say, like, don't use the presidential or federal elections as your protest vote. If you want, you know, a third party to be viable, then, you know, run and support your local dog catchers, mayors, city councilors, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I have to say, been there, done that, broke as shit as well, uh, totally systemically uh, s set up to cut people out of the process and undermine any semblance of actual multi-party democracy and that fucking sucks as well and uh way way insufficient to actually deal with any of the things like i don't know dealing with our 
collapsing ecology and accelerating um, a crisis of uh, unstable climate and ecosystems. Um, I don't know, like getting rid of nuclear weapons before we, as, you know, literally wipe out the future of all people and life, complex life on Earth. Uh, you know, like these things cannot be done on the local level. And the idea that people en masse in a effort that, you know, we can't even do by showing up on one fucking day and voting for, you know, the Green Party are supposed to like somehow put all of their personal time and energy into this electoral like charade uh full time pretty much to be able to like move the needle at the at the the the, the bottom where it has like the least effect on any of the actual like systemic issues that need addressing on like a uh existential level you know uh this is gonna be the most obnoxious thing i've ever asked but can we pause our podcast for a moment so that i can fold my sourdough uh <laughs> well, yeah david needs to david needs to get that bread so to speak yeah sorry uh, i need to, i need to be extremely be a millennial right that, now that, no, that, pause that, my that. podcast so i can fold some sourdough bread so um uh from the intercept by natasha leonard uh with millions unable to pay for housing next month organizers plan the largest rent strike in nearly a century we call this our our wildflowers for the day Hell yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, uh, go down to a uh, couple paragraphs here. Uh, at least 400 families who live in buildings, each containing over 1,500 rent units, are coordinating building wide rent strikes, according to Say Weaver, campaign coordinator for Housing Justice for All, a New York based coalition of tenants and housing activists. So this is in New York City. Yeah. Additionally, over 5,000 people have committed through an online pledge to refuse to pay rent in May. So that's um, that's Coming something. right up. <laughs> yeah, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the need for, like, like, kind of our disappointments in the mainstream progressive left leadership uh, in this country about, like, not calling for big things to happen, you know, work strikes, general strikes, rent strikes, like things that, you know, building solidarity around issues that are really affecting people right now. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration that we're wasting this moment because we just don't know, like, what the fuck we are supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, Organizing rent strikes is, I think, a really valuable use of left energy at this at this moment well organizing oh sorry chris no no i I was just gonna say uh i i agree i think that um we we should be figuring out every way we can to put pressure on the system to be humane and um you know whether that's trying to get our uh you know official elected representatives uh to be accountable to us go ahead awesome try it um if that means you know organizing with your neighbors to just make sure everyone's being taken care of and nobody needs anything they can't get or anything like that that's awesome too and uh if you're organizing a rent strike that seems to be a uh situation necessity you know like there's a de facto rent strike by the fact that about 30 percent of the country doesn't have any income at all and wasn't was living paycheck to paycheck most of their life so like I'm I'm here for it i think it's long overdue and maybe this is going to be um some type of lesson in you know I don't know. This seems like direct action, like people just directly organizing it uh, from the grassroots. 
Yeah, and a rent strike is the type of action that can be born of necessity, like in this moment when there's just literally masses of people who are unable to pay rent, that can actually gain wins that will carry over after the crisis is over, right? Because once you have them by the balls, it doesn't have to be about not paying rent during the crisis. It can it can actually you can get this groundswell of support and momentum that going forward can change, can, you know, increase renters rights, can make landlords more accountable and responsible to their tenants. Like that's the kind of uh, action that I think we need right now, just because it can it can it has the potential to result in long term gains that will be useful to us even beyond this moment. Yeah. So here in New York State, uh, Cuomo was pressured. He wouldn't have done it automatically. He was pressured to do a moratorium on evictions. But that still means that your rent is due. But if you don't pay it, you won't get evicted. But you still need to, like, pay. And You'll have to pay as soon as the yeah. crisis is over. Like, yeah, they're not yeah, even it's right. for it's, you know, it's essentially um, deferring payments, deferring yeah. payments. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, as soon as this is over, you can get kicked out on the street. And there's also talk of like landlords creating blacklists of like uh, uh, people who aren't paying or organizing rent strikes. So like this is um, so, some serious shit. And if you can, um, yeah, use this opportunity to uh, organize in any way that you can to reduce the cost of rent uh, or, or gain more control over the cost of rent, that's that's huge. Because while uh, two-thirds of Americans um, cite medical debt as their reason for filing bankruptcy, every single American's uh, largest uh, cost is their rent or mortgage. And so if you can like reduce that amount of money that you pay to just like live in a building. <laughs> uh, you know, if you can reduce that, you give every single person like a lot more money uh, in their pocket. This is um, a quote from, uh, from Weaver in the article that I think is, is useful to hear. Uh, We're still calling to cancel rent and reclaim our homes. This is the demand of the rent strike. So far, our cries for help have been ignored in Albany. In fact, they've done the opposite of ignore us. Governor Cuomo rammed through an austerity budget that harms low-income tenants and homeless New Yorkers. In the face of sustained unemployment and a never-before-seen eviction crisis, they are offering nearly nothing. And New York has just passed a um, statewide rent control bill, but you have each city has to opt into it. And the first step in opting into the rent control uh, provisions that are now across the state um, requires a, a, a study of all of the vacant homes in, in the city. So uh, if you, if you wanted to get uh, rent control in your um, where you live and you live in New York state, the first step is getting your city government to issue uh, an RFP, a request for proposals to get someone to study how many vacant homes you have in your city. And so if you can start doing that, that would be the first step. There's just some good quotes. I'm scrolling through this article. Um, uh, you know, for rent strike organizers, the ideal is by no means to return after this to a pre-status uh, crisis status quo. And as Weaver put it, uh, quote, we're demanding that we not return to the world we lived in pre-COVID-19, a world with 92,000 homeless New Yorkers and millions of people living just one paycheck away from an eviction. 
So, you know, that that speaks to the point I was, I think, making earlier that this is a good site for sustained political change is, you know, creating those networks of renters who have demands, who have, you know, things about their. This is also a great time to just declare housing as a human right and allow that to become the new normal that moving forward, like, yeah, we just everybody has to be homed. Everybody has to have access to a shelter with, you know. Uh, basic utilities, like that's, I think, a, a very promising direction for activist movement is organizing tenants and demanding new legislation that protects them that goes beyond just this crisis, but into like our new normal once this whole thing ceases. The, the reframing of non-payment as a strike in active collective resistance is a powerful rejection of the sort of capitalist ethic that accords moral failing to an individual's inability to pay a landlord. Yeah, you know, if, like if capitalists can do like that shock doctrine stuff where they like completely rewrite the laws of a city or a uh, or even a whole country in order to, you know, just you know, institute a more neoliberal order, then like we can take advantage of these crises to make a more just status quo. You know, we can we can we can do that. That's possible. And in fact, it's the only way that meaningful progressive change has ever, t- you know, you think of like the New Deal and how many victories that won the working class. Like it comes out of a moment of crisis when there is no other power is so threatened by the discontent of the masses that it is forced to make concessions. And then, you know, ideally, you're able to carry those concessions forward into meaningful change afterwards. And that's really like, it, historically speaking, the time when the most radical political change occurs is born of crisis we we should do like the um uh medieval uh peasantry or the uh the not medieval peasantry but what was the the russian peasantry uh of the imperial age uh where they weaponized rumor and were like oh oh everyone's free Everyone's free now. Yeah, we need to get we, Jeremy back on here. Yeah, yeah we, we, we talked about we, that in our episode with Jeremy Antley. Yep. Yeah, did you hear they they canceled rent? No, no rent this uh this May. Uh, it's been canceled. No, 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 no. We heard that it was canceled. Like that's that's what that's what this says apparently. And maybe this is just self interested because we are homeowners. But like the same thing needs to happen with you know not all homeowners are like wealthy people. A lot of folks live in very modest you know homes, and there the, a lot of working class people choose to purchase property because it is in the long run cheaper than paying rent to somebody because you build equity. But like the same thing is happening to people who are paying mortgages right now that are happening to people paying rent, which is that like, yeah, maybe you can't be kicked out of your home momentarily. But in this, you know, in the meanwhile of your mortgage payments being deferred, they're not being like tacked on to the end of your mortgage. It just means that in 90 days, all the shit that you couldn't pay during that period now comes comes due um but it's also so weird because like what are what are the landlords gonna do right they're gonna like create this blacklist right Uh, they're threatening of organizing uh you know a a landlord anti rent strike uh union where they all share you know the the names and docs uh all the tenants that aren't uh paying them um and that that's one thing that they're they're threatening and doing but like what if that blacklist is just inclusive of everyone like 
like wouldn't it become like a moral imperative to be on that blacklist so that there aren't people that you know because of the fact that they can't pay now can never live anywhere and like who's going to move into the apartment after you kick somebody out um what like the other uh third of the country that's getting evicted at the same time that couldn't pay rent for the same reasons because we shut the entire economy down for no fault of their own Right. It's also worth noting that those blacklists already exist. Like there are state and national databases of people who have maybe been delinquent on rents in the past where if you're you know, when you're getting a, quote, background check to move into a new apartment like those databases exist. It's in fact, it's a huge contributor to homelessness in California. Um, There was some kind of maybe it was a vice documentary. I don't remember. But basically, like if you're you know, if you have a history of being delinquent on rent payments, You can be entered into a database that future landlords can tap into and see like, oh, well, this person didn't, you know, was was evicted in, you know, 2014. And so now it becomes impossible for you to find a place to rent. You're stuck in like long term hotel type situations where the cost, you know, to rent a space is even higher than it would be in an apartment. It's a totally it's a it's a it's a completely broken system that we have now for housing people and. Uh, This is, you know, an opportunity to make radical change if we can just kind of sink our teeth in and get and get something meaningful done. And if you live in a place like Troy, uh, quite often all of the um, uh, like like a a huge portion of the buildings are owned by only a handful of people that obviously talk to each other because they're in the same industry. They have a shared class interest. Yeah, right. Yeah, but but it, like also like you don't need like a sophisticated database. It's just like a group chat, you know, group text with like four people in it. They're just like, hey, this guy, don't rent to this guy because he stiffed me for July rent or whatever. Like that's all. It, that's all it can take for like a lot of places. And, yeah, yeah, and it's and and it just like it lays bare the fact that you know like a landlord makes their money. Uh, when you do a bunch of work and then they just take some of it. Like if if people are out of work, then landlords secondarily don't make any money. But it's very clear that all of their all of their income comes from your labor. Like that's all the only place it comes from. Yeah, I think we said this a couple episodes back. But if your landlord is at risk of losing their home because you can't pay, then you're paying for their housing. Yeah. Not the other way around. Yeah. Oh, shout out to the Trillbillies. They had an awesome little bit. You know the song, um, you down with OPP? Yeah, you know yeah, me. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> Other people's paychecks. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a problem with being a landlord. You run out of other people's money. <laughs> Man, I knew I was living paycheck to paycheck. I didn't really realize my landlord was living pay- my paycheck to my paycheck, too. <laughs> oh man good bits check out the trillabillies a plus yes the trillabillies are great Um, all right so i I think we're is that an episode in the can oh yeah i don't know i mean this next one next one what is that 43 lucky 43 lucky 43 yeah. yeah uh we should think of something special to do for our one year you know we're coming up on it in a couple weeks here our one year uh, birthday, anniversary. Oh shit! Uh, yeah. We should think of something special to do. If you have some ideas for something special we could do for our one year anniversary, hit us oh, up. Oh, Ironweedspod oh. at gmail dot com. Oh, I got, what? I got one, but it's going to uh, require uh, listener participation. Um, Ooh, okay. Ooh. Let's do a Q and A episode. Let's like just uh, you know cover any odd topic. We'll we'll spend you know no more than like ten minutes on a given topic or whatever. But 
if anybody uh, has a question for any of us or, you know, any uh, topic you'd like to us to uh, seriously consider, just sort of, um, you know, like shoot off the hip about, um, let us know at uh, yeah. ironweedspod at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up uh, on our Twitter. Yeah, DMs are open. And how about this? If we don't get enough of a listener response, we'll make up our own questions <laughs> but we won't tell you we'll just pretend that they were submitted we're gonna, we're gonna stuff the suggestion box yeah. it'll be like uh uh pelosi's freezer for president 420 has asked <laughs> what are your thoughts on frozen yogurt uh huh. radical or reactionary i personally think frozen yogurt is reactionary uh brit scratched out danielle <laughs> asks <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, all right. All right, well, yeah, yeah, sort of a relaxed episode, but thanks for listening. Um, For a relaxed kind of week where you (laughs) never leave your house. Yeah. (laughs) But hopefully the the weather is just going to keep improving. I think think Uh, we might be... be, I'm always skeptical to say, but I believe we're after last frost. Looking at the weather report, I don't think it's going to frost again. That would be good. I appreciate that. But yeah, I am not a... uh, who, who made that up? Uh, Benjamin Franklin. So, uh, you know, <laughs> the old farmer's almanac. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 yeah ben so Frank. the So the Kropotkin for this week is chapter 13, the collectivist wages system. This is a critique of like Marxist uh, Marxist conceptions for what we do in a post-capitalist system in which we, you know, essentially the, especially at this time, the popular Marxist notion was like labor notes. You would have, you know, you would do your, you would work at whatever your trade is and you would get a labor note that could then be exchanged for the goods and services that you need to to live. And Kropotkin's really critical of the system. Uh, again, another chapter in which I, I heartily agree with many of Kropotkin's criticisms, uh, especially this uh, m- notion that does come straight out of Marx, which is like the different the valuation of different kinds of labor. Um, and we'll get into some of the terminology for that in, in this chapter. But yeah, that's a real problem. It's like, how do you measure the work of one field or one you know laborer against another? Um, you're going to end up with very unequal outcomes that are a real problem. And as Kropotkin likes to do, he invokes the notion of like past labor, you know, us building on the labor of our ancestors. And so in that instance, like how do you uh, distribute wages fairly like you really can't and so i think a big part of the work going forward is things like housing as a human right food as a human right and dealing with you know the inequality of outcomes along the lines of just like what what do we all have the right to and how do we trade those goods and services with one another in exchange for work and the wage system is a really kind of sloppy um model for doing that and so uh i think this is a good chapter i hope you guys enjoy it it's a little bit longer uh so you know probably good that we're doing a shorter episode so that we can um cover all that but, fit it all in yeah fit it all in there yeah, um in our arbitrary and non-existent uh time limit per episode <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking about whether or not we should be doing shorter episodes but uh basically to do shorter episodes you would be making me work more and i don't really want to do that so 
Yeah, so if you don't like Britney, tell us to make shorter episodes. Yeah, if you want me to work uh, even harder for the same amount of money. Disgusting. <laughs> Bas- you're basically all capitalists if you want shorter episodes. Pretty much. Yeah. You're all exploiting my labor if you think the episode should be shorter. Yeah, you got to pay palace. <laughs> <laughs> it's the emotional labor of editing. Uh, all right, so thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. Ironweedspod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweedspod. Shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Please support us on Patreon. Um, if you've been paying attention to the Twitter drama about the Chapo de Fash pipeline, you may want to check out our anti-Semitic conspiracy theory episode where we talk about tropes. And that will give you a sense of what is actually an anti-Semitic fascist trope and not just something that a humorless, presumably leftist, says on Twitter about what's anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and if you uh, think anything uh, we said is pro- problematic, uh, send it to uh, your local school and get us canceled. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah find please. your local uh, high-profile tweeter and tell them that we're fash. We haven't even talked about the red baiting and, like, Jeremy Corbyn and these, like, absurd accusations of anti-Semitism that happened in the UK with the Labor Party. I mean, we, we've we done interviews the last two episodes, so we've missed a lot of, like, current events. But uh, I think we'll get into some of those in our bonus episode that we're about to cover. So Ooh, if you yeah. do want to hear us talk about those things, uh, you're going to have to fork over at least a dollar to hear it. Yeah. One dollar. Asking a lot, but you know what? I think it's. I think this content is worth a dollar. I'm worth it. Golly, you're worth. You're worth at least three dollars, baby. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But until uh, right. next week, I uh, hope everybody stays safe, happy. Uh, you know, just like take care of one another. Be good to yourself. Lots of patience. You know, uh, we're, we're going to win this. <laughs> And if you get, if you happen to have a sunny day, what I recommend is go outside, take your pants off, bend over, spread them cheeks, get the sunshine <laughs> up your butthole, and it Disinfect will clean you right cheeks. out. You, you need bleach down the gullet and sunshine up the butthole, and the two will meet in the middle, which is your lungs, and they'll do a tremendous job at cleaning that out. Just like grandma used to. That's the iron weeds promise. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, folks, Brittany here. I was only able to get the first half of this chapter recorded. I'm having some problems with my voice, and I just wasn't able to finish it up this week. But you will get the second half next week. And in the meantime, enjoy this first half of Chapter 13. Chapter 13, The Collectivist Wages System. It is our opinion that collectivists commit a twofold error in their plans for the reconstruction of society. While speaking of abolishing capitalist rule, they intend nevertheless to retain two institutions which are the very basis of this rule, representative government and the wages system. As regards so-called representative government, we have often spoken about it. It is absolutely incomprehensible to us that intelligent men— and such are not wanting in the collectivist party, can remain partisans of national or municipal parliaments after all the lessons history has given them, in France, in England, in Germany, or in the United States. While we see parliamentary rule breaking up, and from all sides criticism of this rule growing louder, not only of its results, but also of its principles, how is it that revolutionary socialists defend a system already condemned to die? 
built up by the middle classes to hold their own against royalty, sanctioning and at the same time strengthening their sway over the workers, parliamentary rule is preeminently a middle class rule. The upholders of this system have never seriously affirmed that a parliament or a municipal council represent a nation or a city. The most intelligent among them know that this is impossible. The middle class has simply used the parliamentary system to raise a barrier between itself and royalty, without giving the people liberty. But gradually, as the people become conscious of their interests and the variety of their interests multiply, the system can no longer work. Therefore, Democrats of all countries vainly imagine diverse palliatives. The referendum is tried and found to be a failure. Proportional representation is spoken of, so is representation of minorities, and other parliamentary utopias. In a word, they strive to find what is not to be found, and they are compelled to recognize that they are in a wrong way, and confidence in representative government disappears. It is the same with the wages system. For after having proclaimed the abolition of private property and the possession in common of all means of production, how can they uphold the wages system in any form? It is, nevertheless, what collectivists are doing when they recommend labor checks. It is easy to understand why the early English socialists came to the system of labor checks. They simply tried to make capital and labor agree. They repudiated the idea of violently laying hands on capitalist property. It is also easily understood why Proudhon took up the idea later on. In his mutualist system, he tried to make capital less offensive, notwithstanding the retaining of private property, which he detested from the bottom of his heart, but which he believed to be necessary to guarantee individuals against the state. Neither is it astonishing that certain economists, more or less bourgeois, admit labor checks. They care little whether the worker is paid in labor notes or in coins stamped with the effigy of the republic or the empire. They only care to save from destruction individual ownership of dwelling houses, of land, of factories. In any case, that of dwelling houses and the capital that is necessary for manufacturing. And labor notes would just answer the purpose of upholding this private property. As long as labor notes can be exchanged for jewels or carriages, the owner of the house will willingly accept them for rent. And as long as dwelling houses, fields, and factories belong to isolated owners, men will have to pay them, in one way or another, for being allowed to work in the fields or factories, or for living in the houses. The owners will accept to be paid by the workers in gold, in paper money, or in checks exchangeable for all sorts of commodities. But how can we defend labor notes, this new form of wagedom, when we admit that houses, fields, and factories will no longer be private property and that they will belong to the commune or the nation. Let us closely examine the system of remuneration for work done, preached by French, German, English, and Italian collectivists. Spanish anarchists, who still call themselves collectivists, imply by collectivism the possession in common of all instruments of production and the liberty of each group to divide the produce, as they think fit, according to communist or any other principles. It amounts to this. Everybody works in field, factory, school, hospital, etc. The working day is fixed by the state, which owns land, factories, roads, etc. Every workday is paid for with a labor note, which is inscribed with these words, eight hours work. With this check, the worker can procure all sorts of merchandise in the stores owned by the state or by diverse corporations.
The check is divisible, so that you can buy an hour's work worth of meat, ten minutes' worth of matches, or half an hour of tobacco. After the collectivist revolution, instead of saying two pence worth of soap, we shall say five minutes' worth of soap. Most collectivists, true to the distinction laid down by middle-class economists and by Marx, between qualified work and simple work, tell us, moreover, that qualified or professional work must be paid a certain quantity more than simple work. Thus, an hour's work of a doctor will have to be considered as equivalent to two or three hours' work of a hospital nurse, or to three hours' work of a navvy. Professional or qualified work will be a multiple of simple work, says the collectivist Gronlund, because this kind of work needs a more or less long apprenticeship. Other collectivists, such as the French Marxists, do not make this distinction. They proclaim equality of wages. The doctor, the schoolmaster, and the professor will be paid, in labor checks, at the same rate as the navvy. Eight hours visiting the sick in a hospital will be worth the same as eight hours spent in earthworks or else in mines or factories. Some make a greater concession. They admit that disagreeable or unhealthy work, such as sewerage, could be paid for at a higher rate than agreeable work. One hour's work of a sewerman would be worth, they say, two hours of a professor's work. Let us add that certain collectivists admit of corporations paying a lump sum for work done. Thus, a corporation would say, here are a hundred tons of steel. A hundred workmen were required to produce them, and it took them ten days. Their workday being an eight-hours day, it has taken them eight thousand working hours to produce a hundred tons of steel eight hours a ton. For this, the state would pay them eight thousand labor notes of one hour each, and these eight thousand checks would be divided among the members of the ironworks as they themselves thought proper. On the other hand, a hundred miners having taken twenty days to extract eight thousand tons of coal, coal would be worth two hours a ton, and the sixteen thousand checks of one hour each received by the Guild of Miners would be divided among their members according to their own appreciation. If the miners protested, and said that a ton of steel should only cost six hours' work instead of eight, if the professor wished to have his day paid twice more than the nurse, then the state would interfere and would settle their differences. Such is, in a few words, the organization collectivists wish to see arise out of the social revolution. As we see, their principles are collective property of the instruments of production and remuneration to each according to the time spent in producing while taking into account the productivity of his labor. As to the political system, it would be parliamentarianism modified by positive instructions given to those elected, by the referendum, a vote taken by noes or eyes by the nation. Let us own that this system appears to us unrealizable. Collectivists began by proclaiming a revolutionary principle, the abolition of private property. Then, they deny it no sooner than proclaiming it by upholding an organization of production and consumption that originated in private property. They proclaim a revolutionary principle and ignore the consequences that this principle will inevitably bring about. They forget that the very fact of abolishing individual property and in the instruments of work, land, factories, road, capital, must launch society into absolutely new channels must completely overthrow the present system of production, both in its aim as well as in its means, must modify daily relations between individuals as soon as land, machinery, and all other instruments of production are considered common property.
They say, no private property, and immediately after, strive to maintain private property in its daily manifestations. You shall be a commune as far as regards production, fields, tools, machinery, all that has been invented up till now, factories, railways, harbors, mines, etc., all are yours. Not the slightest distinction will be made concerning the share of each in this collective property. But from tomorrow, you will minutely debate the share you are going to take in the creation of new machinery, in the digging of new mines. You will carefully weigh what part of the new produce belongs to you. You will count your minutes of work, and you will take care that a minute of your neighbors cannot buy more than yours. And as an hour measures nothing, as in some factories a worker can see to six power looms at a time while in another he only tends two, you will weigh the muscular force, the brain energy, and the nervous energy you have expended. You will accurately calculate the years of apprenticeship in order to appraise the amount each will contribute to future production. And this, after having declared that you do not take into account his share in past production. Well, for us it is evident that a society cannot be based on two absolutely opposed principles, two principles that contradict one another continually. And a nation or a commune that would have such an organization would be compelled to revert to private property in the instruments of production, or to transform itself immediately into a communist society.